Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com and check out the vast array of podcasts they have to offer. Recently, I've been really struggling with the idea of vaccine hesitancy. It's really hard for me to get my head around how these things that I kind of look at as miracles are being dismissed by such a large portion of Americans. So I wanted to learn more. And a book was recommended to me that really opened my eyes about the whole thing. That book, Immunization, How Vaccines Became Controversial by Stuart Bloom, is the focus of this episode today. And I'm thrilled to have Stuart on the program. Stuart is a professor of science and technology studies at the University of Amsterdam. He has been studying vaccines for over two decades. At a time when vaccines are a vital tool in the fight against COVID-19 in all its various mutations, Stuart's hard-hitting book takes a longer historical perspective. It argues that globalization and cuts to healthcare have been eroding faith in the institutions producing and providing vaccines for more than 30 years. His book tells the history of immunization from the work of early pioneers such as Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch through the eradication of smallpox in 1980 to the recent introduction of new kinds of genetically engineered vaccines. Immunization exposes the limits of public health authorities while suggesting how they can restore our confidence. I had a wonderful conversation with Stuart. We talked about a whole lot of things. We examined how vaccines protect the human body while looking at just how exactly viruses are born into populations. We look back at the dawning of vaccine hesitancy. We converse upon the corporations and politicians that are chiefly to blame for this hesitancy and champion the idea that while vaccine technologies are extraordinary tools, addressing the root causes of viruses is absolutely crucial in addressing urgent public health concerns. Stewart's book really opened my eyes to what a lot of people are struggling with, and it gave me a bit of empathy for some people I've really been having a hard time understanding their point of view. So this uh, conversation is very eye-opening, and I have no doubt that you will enjoy this interview with Stuart Bloom. Stuart, thank you again for your time. I really, really appreciate you being here. Your, uh, your book was very eye-opening to me and, and, and so, um, so necessary to, to kind of understanding a lot of what's going on around. So uh, I, I just kind of wanted to start it with uh, asking, you know, I know you've been studying um, vaccines for over 20 years. So yeah. that makes me think with your uh, finger. So, you know, on the pulse here, uh, I'm thinking you can't be that surprised with, um, you know, how controversial this topic has become. Is that the case? I was taken completely by surprise. Wow. Uh, in fact, I had, when that book was published in 2017, I thought, mm-hmm. okay, that's enough. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll get on with some other stuff. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's been impossible to leave the topic. Of course, uh, 
so yeah, I was surprised. I, half of me was delighted, obviously. Yeah. And half of me was shocked. Yep. That's. I'm sure we'll get into why why you're so surprised. That that is that is fascinating. It, and yeah, that's that's going to be interesting to explore. But let's start at the ground floor a little bit and some information I think we all kind of just need on on like a basic level. And that is an, is just kind of the question: How is it that um, vaccines work? How do how do they protect the human body? Well, I think basically they do two kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not an immunologist, as you know, but sure. my lay explain, my lay understanding is they do two things. They they recognize intruding dangerous organisms, pathogens, and they kind of store a memory of those entities so mm-hmm. that when the body or the immune system comes across them again, it knows that they're dangerous and it kind of waves a red flag. And the second thing they do is that they they mobilize, as it were, a variety of defense forces. So on the one hand, they 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 warn the immune system that something is attacking it, mm-hmm. and they mobilize a variety of uh, antibodies and so-called killer cells that kind of neutralize the enemy. So those are the two things, based, as far as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are like all these hundreds of specialists who study this in great detail. But I think this is basically what they do. They warn, they forewarn, mm-hmm. and they help mobilize defense forces. Yeah. It, they're, they're, honestly, it's uh, some of the, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy that, that we're going to discuss and, and the reasons for and, and you know, we'll, we'll see that some are valid. It, it does really shock me sometimes just because they are so amazing. And just as, as you just, you know, plainly laid out what they do, it just when you're even just saying it, it's just kind of mind blowing to me. But um, another foundation piece that that your book kind of touches on is, as you know, you wait into wait into the pages there is um, kind of how viruses are born into populations. Uh, you pointed out, which is pretty daunting, that one study suggests that one or two new viruses per year are likely to be found, which is pretty intense to think about. But um, could you speak just, uh, you know, kind, kind of tersely how viruses are born into populations and how they move about? I think there are viruses that have been with us for a very long time, and we kind of grown used to them, mm-hmm. like the viruses that cause a common cold, yeah. influenza, uh, a few others. Uh, so we have, we have influenza viruses that keep coming back in slightly modified form every year. So they're not new, it's just that they change their colors and mm-hmm. uh, evolve. But the new viruses, I mean, how new, how we get confronted by new viruses that really become a big threat. Mostly these viruses live in quite happily, well, not the virus can be happily, but (laughs) unseriously or undangerously in in animals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So many virologists make estimates, but I don't know, there are thousands probably of viruses lurking 
if that if you can uh, if a non sentient entity can lurk uh, in in animals in in jungles mm -hmm. uh, the problem is the problem is how they get from the animals to people mm -hmm. and how they get once they got to people how they move between people so many of these viruses seem to 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 be hosted by bats well there isn't that much contact between humans and bats so the general theory is that there's usually some animal that works as a kind of intermediary. So there was a there was a virus that emerged that's called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which is sort of a bit like our present COVID virus. Uh, and that seems to have been mediated by camels. So wh wherever it was in some animal, bats or whatever, infected a camel and the camel infected a person. And there's been a lot of speculation as to with Ebola, with, with the original SARS virus, with the COVID virus we have now, mm. kind of what fulfilled that function? How did it get from bats or wherever it was to people? Uh, but then it has to having the real problem emerges when the virus modifies itself so that it can be transmitted between people. Hmm. It's not, I mean, if one person gets infected, but that's as far as it gets, it's not a big risk. But if the virus is able to spread between people, then we're in trouble. So basically, it's most of the viruses that are responsible for what we tend to call newly emerging infectious diseases hmm. are viruses that were previously hosted by wild animals. And because of contact between animals and humans, uh, possibly mediated by some species that link the bats or some other wild animals to the, so some domesticated species that is in contact both with wild animals and with humans, mm -hmm. uh, it, it gets to people and the, the viruses seem to be very good, as we know from influenza, they very rapidly, in, or HIV, mm. they very easily and rapidly mutate uh, and find ways of, I mean, if we, viruses have an interest in, well, again, I'm not sure this is a kind of, a, uh, you can't really say they have an interest, but. <laughs> I know what you mean. They, of course. Uh, it's not in, <laughs> I don't know how to put it. Mm -hmm. It's not in their interest that everybody dies yep. because then they'll, they'll have nowhere to live. It's yep. like pulling the house down. <laughs> so they find ways of modifying themselves to find mm -hmm. new homes and humans can be a pretty delicious uh, new home for them, a luxury dwelling. <laughs> I love that phrasing of, of delicious. <laughs> I completely understand what you're saying. You know what's fascinating and um, you know, unnerving is uh with with these viruses um comes something that's it's you know almost uh not almost, but it's it's you know pretty dangerous as well. And that's um fear, the epidemic of fear you point out in your book. Um it, it rarely comes neat, as you say, and 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 so pointedly and it can heighten concerns in a major way. And I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit how fear can exacerbate uh, the problem here and how it can be exploited. It's, it's pretty important uh, when it comes to 
what we're going to steer our, our conversation towards, and that's vaccine uh, hesitancy. It's funny. I, w- I was I was talking to somebody on the telephone that I know vaguely who works in the Ministry of Health in 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 Sudan, mm-hmm. and asking about people's fear of the virus. Over this was a few months ago. Yeah, and she said, oh, "We when we have got no time for that. We've got more pressing things to worry about." So, on the one hand. Mm. Fear has to do with the the kinds of things we, the kind of easy, taken for granted existence we expect. Uh, people didn't used to be so. People didn't used to be so frightened. I don't think. Maybe mm. they were of the nineteen eighteen influenza vaccine virus, yeah. which killed so many. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, how much of it is how much of it is due to the fact that most of us in the West or the North don't worry about our mere survival mm-hmm. and how much of it is due to the way in which risks are presented by by the media and by the politicians I don't know mm-hmm. uh, I'm not convinced that people's fear of becoming sick or infected by this virus is everywhere the same I think where people are kind of struggling to survive, worrying about where their food's going to come from, they're less worried about this. Yeah. Uh, if they're worried about starvation, if they're worried about homelessness, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, those people are not likely to be quite so exposed to the social media or the mass media. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that there are organs of communication which have an interest in sustaining a level of fear yeah. Because when we're scared, we tend to grab every bit of information we can find. So in, uh, uh, this this was suggested by medical historians when the when the HIV/AIDS epidemic broke out or became known. I mean that people said, "Well, there's an interest on the part of media in keeping us on our toes, keeping us anxious." I'm not I'm not able to to I mean, the only thing I can say for sure is that yes, it certainly plays a big part mm-hmm. in how far it's universal. I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's particularly in, let's say, more affluent societies yeah. and societies where with high levels of access to different kinds of media mm-hmm. and especially media that perhaps have less concerned with with their moral responsibility and more concerned with the their sales yeah so i think it's a combination of things there's no doubt that it plays a big part mm-hmm. uh, but where the blame lies and what we can do about it is it, it's not so easy i'm not so sure yeah i think, i love how you point out in order to get sick you have to be in contact with an infected person or something they've touched in order to get scared. You just have to turn on the TV or the, or the computer. It's, it's, yeah. it's really, yeah. it's right there. Let's go, um, let's bring it back. And, and, and this will be interesting to start um, when we dig into vaccine hesitancy, but um, where did you find out through your research that, um, or where, you know, what moment in time did you, start to see, uh, you know, vaccine hesitancy kind of uh, begin? Well, that's kind of a complicated question, yeah, loaded, Mike, for two loaded. reasons. <laughs> yep. uh, 
First, when vaccines first arrived, there were people who objected to vaccination. That's like in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, they objected basically on the grounds that they didn't want to be compelled. It was a kind of liberties and rights to kind of objection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then it all disappeared. I mean, that gradually people got used to the idea of vaccination and uh, general health services were improved in, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. There was nothing that anybody would have called vaccine hesitant. Yeah, yeah. What we find is in the 19... Seven, uh, late 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, we see the emergence of something which was not called vaccine hesitancy and wasn't actually quite, or didn't appear to be that. It, what it appeared to be is what we now call anti-vaccination or anti-vax. So what you see is more or less corresponding with the rise of, some people say, the spread of the internet. I say, corresponding with the rise of neoliberalism and market domination of, the, of ways of thinking. Mm. Uh, in the 1980s, 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, we see the foundation of all kinds of groups visible on the internet, basically critical of vaccination or demanding the right for people to make their own choices. But they were not, nobody used the word vaccine hesitancy. They were, what's interesting is that the public health profession noticing all of this and becoming worried because it was reflected in a downturn in rates of vaccine acceptance in, mm. in many developed countries. Uh, the assumption was that these downturn, people starting to question vaccination was due to the misinformation that these groups were propagating through the internet. Mm. Misinformation about the risks of vaccines. So the, all, the, all the attention went to, I mean, public, lots, you see lots of researchers analyzing anti-vaccination websites. Nobody actually bothered to ask Who's being affected by these? What are the websites and, 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 and disentangle and critique their arguments, which were mostly fairly fallacious. Uh, but it was only gradually, very gradually, that it became apparent that this was not the whole of the story. Mm -hmm. That most of the people who were doubtful about vaccination mm -hmm. or were not fully immunizing their children. It became they were the most they, they turned out to be the most highly educated people, not the ignorant ones. It was the it was the ones who were searching out all the information and demanding to make their uh, uh, claiming the right and indeed the knowledge to make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. the, con the notion of vaccine hesitancy was kind of the concept is actually only 10 to 20 years old. It was introduced when the public health profession had to acknowledge that it was not only about people refusing vaccinations or being misled by misinformation. 
It was about critical parents wanting to make sure they've got all the information before they decide what's best for their child. Because it, 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 it's, I mean, in, in a way, this, this whole area was kind of uh, pushed to the margins by what was going on in clinical medicine, mm -hmm. where people, we were all being told, be an informed consumer you know, make up your own mind, you have to give your consent to this or that intervention. Except here, here we were told, just do it. Mm. And people were getting accustomed to the idea, I'm an informed consumer, I'm going to collect the information, I'm going to decide what's best. And very reluctantly, the, the, the public health profession had to say, okay, it's not really about, or it's not principally about actual objection to vaccination in principle. Mm -hmm. It's about parents having doubts, having questions, looking for information and not always finding answers. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's a much more complicated phenomenon than the public health profession was willing to admit and still has difficulty with it because its roots lie outside the realm of, of healthcare and medicine. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's an answer. It certainly, certainly is, Stuart. That's, that's a lot to chew on there and a lot to think about. And it's so nuanced in that way. And you touched on it uh, right there, how, um, you know, it's not just misinformation. I feel like that's kind of like what everyone focuses on right now as a problem when it comes to vaccines. Most of the blame when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, and it's surely a factor, of course, but there's so much more to it as you were speaking to. But your book explores ideas of, um, you know, who uh, is actually, um, you know, uh, not chiefly, but a, a large part of, you know, who's to blame for this vaccine hesitancy. And that's these companies who, you know, value profit over public health. And I was wondering yeah. if you could speak on that some, the, uh, you know, uh, how these companies that you know, are creating these life-saving, uh, in some cases, technologies, how they're actually to blame for people being, you know, unnerved about their product. Well, that's a very, it's a very important question. Uh, so I'm not, I, 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 I think we can't say the pharmaceutical industry is evil. Mm. The pharmaceutical industry has changed. The industry, I mean, the people who ran pharmaceutical companies, let's say 50 years ago, were on the whole committed to public health. Okay, they had, to, they had to make a profit as well, but they had a sense of social obligation. I think it's the transformations in the nature of capitalism that took place in the 1980s, mm -hmm. which have led to a change in the, in the very nature of the industry. It's my impression that there's less, I'm not an expert on, I've never worked for a pharmaceutical company. I, mm -hmm. I don't really know them from the inside at all. Yep. But my impression is that they, that the management of those companies is far more necessary, of necessity, orient, has become far more oriented to, let's say, shareholder value and profit than they used to be. That's one thing. So the industry is pro the, the the commercial industries producing vaccines uh, work slightly differently than they used to. That's part of the story. The story in 
in parts of Europe and Latin America and parts of Asia is slightly different because in parts of Europe, not only in the ex-communist countries, but also the Scandinavia here in the Netherlands where I live, also large parts of Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, I mean, a number of countries, many large countries in the developing world and many welfare states in Europe made their own vaccines in public sector institutions that were not in the business of making a profit. Mm. Uh, they were there to provide the kind of vaccines or to provide the vaccines that the public health needed, bearing in mind the threats that it's that particular population was uh, facing. So there was no con there was no concern about you know, the the the, you know, the influence of other kinds of motivations like profit. Those institutions have largely vanished. Uh, they vanished partly. It, it, it's a com that's a complicated story, but they vanished partly because. Uh, the new ways of making vaccines that using genetic engineering, all the molecular biology revolution that took place in the 1980s uh, was so highly patented as it still is. Uh, you know, what we used to think of as a, a, a nobody talks about, well, uh, knowledge was converted, uh, this is the way I like to put it, knowledge was converted into intellectual property. People, public and private sector institutions used to be fairly willing to exchange knowledge in the interests of the public health. That's no longer the case. The public sector vaccine institutes that I referred to were closed down, many of mostly, or many of them, partly because they were no longer able to access the knowledge they needed to make state-of-the-art vaccines. Mm. That knowledge had been patented and the companies were unwilling to share. Uh, it's come, this issue has come back in another form today with all the talk about breaking open patenting, yeah, yeah. breaking open patents. But mm. it, 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 so it's two things really. It's the public sector involvement in making vaccines, which was not much of a, I mean, it, this was not in the US. I mean, the, 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 the vaccine production has always been 95% in the public, in the private sector in the US or in the UK or in Germany. But in many other countries, it was, but it no longer is, with one or two exceptions. Mm. And that's partly to do with the new intellectual property regime that came about in the 1980s, the new ways of making vaccines, but also because governments were more and more concerned with saving money. Yep. So they began to think if we can buy, if we can buy our vaccines from Merck or some other large company, what's the point in trying to make them such a hassle? So it's a change in ideology, a change in the nature of the, the companies and their management and their priorities. And we see, for example, that, I mean, when you spend up, when you spend like millions of dollars developing a new vaccine and getting it to market, you need to have a market. 
Mm. And there are there are cases we can find from the history where uh, a market had to be created, and sometimes that means making us scared of something we didn't used to be scared of. Right. The best example described in the literature is mumps. Mm -hmm. Nobody used to think mumps was very important. I mean, hardly, nobody ever really died of mumps, or hardly anybody did. And all the fears about male sterility were completely overblown. Mm -hmm. uh, but when a mumps vaccine was produced, there had to be a market created. And, and there was a lot of, it's, it, people have written about it. There was kind of, mumps was made frightening. And that was deliberate, like, rebranding exercise. Yeah, it's messed up. So that we'd want the vaccine. The vaccine. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty complicated thing, but the root of it all is the, the yeah, vaccines have become increasingly a source of profit. And yeah. perhaps, perhaps the biggest problem, perhaps the, the root of it is that they have become perhaps the major source of growth for the pharmaceutical industry. Yep, absolutely. They've become too important economically. Uh, and that, that's part of the problem, I think. Yeah, yeah. The principal source of growth for most pharmaceutical companies are vaccines. I, and that's so important, what you just said, how, you know, they're, they're, these vaccines are, are being employed for, um, you know, uh, uh, concerns that aren't life threatening. And, and you know what, uh, uh, this is something I want to ask, because a big factor here, surely, is how they've kind of been um, turned to as the cure-all for, for any problem we're facing, meaning instead of addressing root concerns of, of some of these pandemics and, and, and problems, um, you know, this is the crucial tool that is leaned on. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how the industry focuses on vaccines um, uh, kind of solely um, over, over, you know, bigger solutions or, or, or getting to the root of the problem uh, and how this is, you know, problematic in, you know, in general. Yeah. Well, I don't think we can blame the industry for that, Mike, because that's mm. what they do. They make drugs. We can blame <laughs> sure, the politicians. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So, like, in the 1940s, when tuberculosis was a very big problem in, mm -hmm. in, in much of the world, and it's coming back, of course, but that's another issue, uh, people recognized that vaccination was a kind of technological fix they recognized that the problem was rooted in poverty and the conditions in which people lived and worked. But that was seen as like so monumental a problem. So let's, let's we can vaccinate people to go on with and that'll give us breathing space in which to find a real solution. Mm -hmm. Well, the search for the real solution has been totally forgotten. Uh, and what was once a technological fix, once was what, what was once a means to an end, which was health, yeah, has become an end in now. itself. Yeah. I mean, all the yeah. we read, I, I, I find this really interesting. We read so much about the share of the population that's been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But the issue is, are people dying? Are people getting sick? Yeah. We, we've shifted our attention from health Okay, the, the, the pandemic is a special case, but sure. it was like that even five years ago. We read far more about you know, how many children are vaccinated than we read about how many children are sick. Mm. Uh, it's like, so 
It's partly, it's a whole lot of things. That's the trouble with being a social scientist. We're just making things more, more complicated for ourselves <laughs> and everyone else. Uh, it's partly because vaccinating people is, it's kind of a, it's not easy to do, but it's easier than the alternatives. And somebody's making money from it. The alternatives are difficult. Also politically. Money. Yeah. And nobody makes money. They cost money. They cost money. Uh, the example that I always, that I like for this is, is with rotavirus, mm. uh, which is a big problem. In, I mean, it's, it's, a very serious diarrheal disease. Uh, it can be fatal. Mm. Uh, but you'd actually save far more lives if people were simply, people in poor countries that have no access to affordable and clean, good quality drinking water when it were provided with access to clean and good quality drinking water. Because, but it's, it's, it's kind of, that's 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 a how you do that. It's it it costs it costs an effort. It costs money. Mm. It may cost political capital, mm -hmm. and nobody makes any money. You sell a you sell a vaccine, and it's it, it it you're doing something as a politician. Somebody's making money, and uh, it, it it it's 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 the problem. Is, this problem, I think, is not the fault of the industry. Mm -hmm. It's the fault of politicians who have no time or attention for the longer term. Uh, it is more difficult to, I mean, if we look at what's going on now, all the statistics we see, or most of the statistics we see, are about rollout of the vaccine. Oh, okay, we see death statistics. We Sometimes we see hospitalization statistics. I would like to know, for example, about the impact of the pandemic on communities, mm -hmm. which would mm -hmm. give a totally different picture. Yeah, we focus on vaccines because they make money. Mm -hmm. They're more feasible than any other alternative. Mm -hmm. And they lend themselves to nice graphics. You know, we can show percentages being covered, whereas kind of the amount of suffering the, the, the epidemic or the pandemic is causing doesn't lend itself to a nice graphic and it's harder to show progress yeah it's funny i mean because suffering has so many causes yeah yeah it's i mean this the easy relative uh and and profitable uh, uh fix yeah. um you know you mentioned just off the top that you um you were surprised just at how you know, relevant um, your research has become and just how the increase in controversy is just uh, expounding. Um, are, are you are you surprised, though, that how political it had has become and how it's been wielded uh, as a tool, um, specifically here in the United States, how it's become yeah. a left first right issue? I was, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts there. It's just it's just that's still jaw dropping to me that it's become so political and how it is just it's there's a divide um in in the way that these two uh political um you know ideologies look at it it's crazy to me no i, I agree i mean it's one of the uh, it, it it's become political both in domestic politics especially perhaps in the us but not only 
but also in international relations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, nobody could have expected. I certain. I mean, I saw. I foresaw in early 2020 some of the problems that would arise, uh, like unequal distribution and access to vaccines. I did not anticipate, and I don't think anybody anticipated that it would, I mean, the, the kind of rivalry between especially the US and China would start to look like the space race of the 1960s, and that it would be like about global prestige. Uh, uh, and that's part of what happened. And I think that's, a, it's a tragedy. But actually, even, the, even there, the roots go back a bit further because you can see already in the 1990s or the early 2000s, politicians was not only in the US, in many countries, in Europe too, were starting to say things like global health is much more important. And it's too important to just leave it to health officials. Mm. Uh, and what we see is a kind of slow so-called securitization of global health. And we start, we, we begin to see the term global health security. Mm. I mean, it started with fear of bioterrorism and bioweapons, but it's kind of taken over. So it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of political, politi of distinctive ways of politicization, both of which are terribly dangerous and terribly, I mean, absolutely not in the health interest of anybody anywhere. So the one is the the kind of it domestic polarization. How how vaccines have become a symbol of something, mm -hmm. and perhaps it's most extreme in the U.S. Sure. But also a kind of it 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 becomes something on the on the on the global level with kind of contest for a, a marker of a marker. I think of the superiority of one or other political and economic system. If we can do it better than you, it shows that our system is better than yours. And this is absolutely not in the interest of anybody's health. Uh, it, it, however, however much I disapprove of changes in the pharmaceutical industry over the last 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the politicians that are really letting us down here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's important to to take note of too. I mean, definitely, you know, the capitalistic interest of these these companies are are you know so so crucial when it comes to this. But politically speaking, it's just they they're kind of playing playing with our lives and and playing, you know, just for it's just it's kind of daunting to think about. What do you think about um, just things to kind of bring us home a little bit? Um, you know, uh, I'm sure you didn't realize or didn't think they'd be this hot button of, of an issue. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, um, where you see this controversy going or kind of, um, you know, what, what we can expect as, as we wade into, you know, these, these, these controversial waters. I mean, you know, thinking back to the fact that we do, we will be facing, um, you know, more viruses. Um, it's just continuous. That's just, that's just kind of life on earth as a human being. And, I'm I'm just curious about, um, you know, how I, it's just funny to think about where we're going with this, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. <laughs> where we're we going? Yeah, I think you got a, you these, bunch of crystal balls. 
I sometimes say to my friends, do you prefer Mad Max or, or Waterworld? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's, <laughs> is it, do you like dry or water What's, or fire? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> Uh, the future. I think. I think I'm glad I'd be dead before one or other before I have to choose. Uh, oh man! So far as the viruses and pandemics are concerned, mm -hmm. yes, there'll be more. There'll be more, uh, unless. I mean, the, 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 there are things we ought to do to to reduce the risk, mm. uh, which would include far more rigorous controls on, on destruction of forests, more rigorous controls on factory farming, a whole lot of things. But we can't predict, I mean, people got it wrong with, there was planning for a future pandemic 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but what they expected was a new form of influenza. Mm -hmm. They didn't expect this virus. And I think, so I, I was just reading in some in that the UK is preparing by developing some large research viral research center, but we since we can't predict nobody can predict which where the next viral threat will come from, what kind of a virus it will be. I don't see how they can do very much to start developing vaccines. Surely, it seems to me the important thing is to is to not focus on the vaccine, but to focus on the impact of the pandemic. Yeah. And if we look at the impact of the pandemic, it's been far more severe in places, in communities, in societies, uh, with little access to to good health, with 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 poor public health facilities, mm -hmm. poor public health infrastructure. It's been far more severe in certain com in communities uh, with high levels of, of, of uh, polluted air and respiratory infection. It's, we can't predict the vaccine, but we, know, we can't predict the virus, but we can be sure that we can know far more about the factors that will influence susceptibility of one or other community. The best thing we can do is to improve is to equalize to access to, to public health, to improve public health infrastructure, yeah. because that won't help us control the next virus, but it will help us ensure that less people die or less people get very sick. But this is, this is the kind of, what's the word, a spin-off from this hmm. total focus on vaccines as the holy grail of, of, of disease control. Hmm. Um, so, I think people will draw the long lessons because there's yeah. a uh, there's, uh, partly economic incentive, and it it sounds good. It's uh, it looks like it's it's more politically sexy to build a a great big vaccine research center mm -hmm. than to start investing in boring things like water purification. Absolutely, absolutely. We can, we, I mean, it's 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 getting to the heart of the matter takes more effort but it's going to just go you know so much longer and really really take us where we need to go and i just i don't know i don't know because of the financial interest of it i don't know if they they're going to go there but i gotta say this um your book really it was it was crucial to me because i just i was having such a hard time understanding um where some people were coming from and it, I, I feel like there was an anger behind 
some of them, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at people who who just kind of wouldn't wouldn't take care of the the or have the public health interest at heart, or that's what I was thinking, and I was trying to get to the bottom of, you know, why why are they doing this? Why why would people do this? And it was such a more nuanced um, problem than than you know or, or discussion than I ever fathomed. And and your book really helped me. And I believe will help others, and that's why I'm so thrilled to spread the word about it. Really understand what's 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 going on here, why people are are concerned, and just it it was so eye opening to me. And so I I really I appreciate the book. It, it helped me a lot, and I appreciate you taking the time here to talk about it. it it's 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 really eye opening stuff, and you know the discussions we really need to be having moving forward. So thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed, Mike. I enjoyed the discussion very much. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.